Good morning, everybody. Um, let me start by inviting you back in two weeks. Uh, in two weeks, that Sunday night on the 21st at 6.30 in the evening, this room is going to be transformed uh, into a circle. And we're going to worship in here, and we're going to worship in, in the round so that we can see one another's faces and be singing and encouraging one another. And it's going to be a great time. We've done this a number of times in the past, and it's always been been a really good thing. Uh, I also want to just uh, welcome you to fellowship, and if this is maybe your first time here, or maybe you're kind of renewing a commitment to be back uh, here, just um, glad that you are here. I want to let you know um, that what we're doing is this um, series through the Bible. We're taking one book at a time, and we've actually uh, took over a year to, to do the entire Old Testament. And today, what I'm going to be doing is a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament will come back in a couple of weeks and start with Matthew. Um, but I'm going to start today's message with um, a statement that really does guide me. Um, it, it guides me as I, as I do what I do up here on Sunday mornings. And here's, here's what I believe at the core of my being. I believe that the Word of God applied to the people of God by the Spirit of God in community has transformative power to conform you to the image of Christ and make you useful for God's purposes. I believe that the Word of God applied to the people of God by the Spirit of God in community has transformative power to conform you to the image of Christ and make you useful for God's purposes. Um, that really does, does guide me. I, I don't believe that it's, it's my applications. It, it really is me making the Word of God clear and the Spirit applying that in your life. Um, it's not making you useful for my purposes or the purposes of the church, but for the purposes of God. Um, and and that, that guides what I do. It guides the, the ministry that I have. I, I truly believe that at the core of my being. It, it, in fact, it, it guides us as, as I think about my own succession plan here and someone coming in to, to replace me, and as we as elders are searching for that uh, person who will come and walk alongside me and teach, we're looking for someone who will join us, who believes that the Word of God <laughs> applied to the people of God by the Spirit of God in community where there's honesty and accountability uh, there's someone walking with you through the ups and the downs of your life, that that, that has transformative power, um, supernatural transformative power that will conform you to the image of Christ and make you useful for God's purposes. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do during this, this series. Um, I, I started with a number of purposes, and as I've gotten to this point in the series, kind of halfway through, we finished the Old Testament, we're looking at the New Testament. I just want to reiterate some of the purposes uh, that I, I look and I have, have really emerged really clearly for me. I, this, this whole series is to help us read our Bible well personally. Um, all of the studies show that it's your personal encounter with God's Word that is most predictive of growing spiritual maturity. It's not how well you listen to my messages, how, how many charts you have filed away. Um, it, it's not how well you take notes. It's your personal encounter with God's Word. And so that's what I'm trying to do is, is provide a series that will help you read your Bible personally and do that well. Um, I, we live in a time where you have access to more messages on the Bible, both good and bad, than ever in the history of mankind. 
And I hope that this series will allow you to listen to those messages well and, and connect with the good ones and evaluate and listen critically to the ones that are off target. This is going to help us see the, the big picture of God's story. And, and more than any other message, maybe today's message is going to do that because what I'm going to try to do is span the Old Testament and New Testament, put that big story picture together. This also provides us a context for interpreting all of Scripture. How, does, how do each of the individual pieces fit into the big narrative, and particularly with the small pieces, um, giving you the, content, the context and the structure for each book? Now, you're going to have to get into these books on your own, um, but, but this, this series hopefully will give you the context for every single book in the Bible and give you the structure that you can hang things on when you read through it. It also helps us see where we fit in God's story. How do we play a picture in this big thing that God is doing? Demonstrating that we need him, that Christ is the solution. He's left the Holy Spirit to empower us to take that message around the world until he comes back. How do we fit into that? Um, I hope this series helps us see that. And then finally, this, this has emerged for me recently, providing hope that God's up to something. Because as we look around at the world, it feels like, what is going on here? Um, and maybe you feel like that way even in your pers personal life. What is going on here? And, and I hope this series will, will help us see that God is up to something big, and we're a part of that, and he wants to encourage us with that. And so today's message is really going to be this. It's going to be the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything in between. That's what I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover the Old Testament. I'm going to cover the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then I'm going to preview the New Testament. And part of what I'm trying to do is, is allow myself some freedom to give you enough structure for the New Testament that I don't have to do it with every one of the books. I'm going to start with this. Um, this is the amount of material kind of graphically related um, <clears throat> for the writers of, of the Scriptures. Um, you can see that Moses has a huge amount of material. And so as we cover the Old Testament, the narrative storyline covering Moses is, is a lot of that. Um, the surprising contributor to the Old Testament is Ezra. Ezra is the second largest contributor to the Old Testament. Um, Ezra is responsible for um, a number of the books in the Old Testament and perhaps even responsible for editing the whole thing together into a collection. After Moses and Ezra, the next largest contributor is Jeremiah. Um, in the New Testament, I think most people think of, of Paul as the largest contributor to the New Testament, but it's actually Luke, because Luke writes Luke and Acts. He's the, he's the person who really gives the foundation chronologically with the life of Christ and the history of the church. He puts the chronological pieces together for us. After that, there are 13 letters by Paul that comprise about 20% of that, and then John writes a lot, too, because you've got the Gospel of John and Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all written by the same author. So that's how kind of the, the contributors are going here. Um, now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to move into kind of trying to review what we've done for a number of weeks, uh, looking at the books in the Old Testament. And here's, here's how I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to summarize it myself, but maybe the best summary um, is, is this. This is what I think is going on in the Old Testament. Paul says it in Romans. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, I think, what the Old Testament tells us. We were helpless. <laughs> um, in paradise, we made the wrong choices. So God kicked us out of the garden, and he, um, he actually ended up 
because things got worse and worse. He started over, cleansed the whole world with a flood, started over with Noah, made a lot of promises to Noah, and made a lot of promises to Abraham, and neither paradise or promises um, set us on the right track. We kept blowing it. Um, Then um, he sent um, a, a lot of laws for us to follow. That didn't help either. We didn't, wouldn't follow the laws. Um, then there were a lot of um, leaders, charismatic leaders like the judges, um, these people who were big, flamboyant, leading uh, military crusades. That didn't help. They were, they were horrible. Then kings. None of them were helpful either. And then he sent a bunch of prophets to preach a bunch of lessons. So paradise, promises, laws, um, leaders, lessons, none of that helped us. We were helpless. And the Old Testament, I think, is demonstrating that to us, showing us that none of this was going to help us. And it really builds our need. We need something different than all of that. We don't need paradise. We don't need promises. We don't need laws. We don't need leaders. We don't need a bunch of lessons. You know what we need? What we get. At the right time, Christ. And, and that's what we're, we're seeing, and I'm going to try to make this transition. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back, and I'm going to summarize this Old Testament story, okay? And as I summarize this Old Testament story, I'm going to read something to you. It takes me about four minutes to read it, um, and it was actually written by my wife. Um, she's the one who listened to me talk for a number of years and just said, hey, we can summarize this whole story pretty quickly. It's all on one page, and it's... Um, out at the Connection Center. It's on, available online. One page that summarizes the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to make a transition. I'm going to do the same thing for the New Testament um, that, that she helped write as well. Um, but, but here's the Old Testament storyline, and I'm just going to read through it. I'm, gonna, I'm barely going to pause as I read through this. So here's, here's the Old Testament. <clears throat> After creation, Adam and Eve fell out of perfect relationship with God. God then sent a flood And at the Tower of Babel, the nations are born. Then about 4,000 years ago, God called Abraham. And Abraham left from Ur, which is near the Persian Gulf, which tastes like salt, which is a mnemonic device, that helps us remember that God called a group that left Ur, and it was Sarah, Abraham's wife, Abraham, Lot, Abraham's nephew, and Terah, Abraham's father. They traveled along the Tigris and the Euphrates. Their first stop was at Haran, where Terah dies. Now, here's the geography lesson. Uh, We have the Sea of Galilee that's in the north, uh, and it flows through the Jordan River and dumps into the Dead Sea. To the west is the Mediterranean, and then between those two areas is where most of the story of the Old Testament takes place, and that's the land of Israel. So that's the geography of what's going to unfold here. The nation of Israel is going to grow. There are several important characters in the creation in the generations that follow Abraham. Abraham's sons were Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac's sons were Esau and Jacob, and one of Jacob's sons was Joseph, who's taken to Egypt after his brothers sold him into slavery. The nation's going to follow him there. The Jews eventually ended up in Egypt when a famine drove Joseph's brothers to Egypt in a quest for food. They remained in Egypt and eventually spent 400 years in bondage as the slaves of Pharaoh. That was until Moses went before Pharaoh and took God's message, let my people go, but Pharaoh had a hard heart and he said no. So God sent 10 plagues, culminating with most frightening, the angel of death visiting the Egyptian households while he passed over the Israelites' household. That event is referred to as Passover. Pharaoh then relented and told the Jews they could leave Egypt. The Jews fled and only escaped Pharaoh's continued wickedness when God miraculously parted the Red Sea. 
From there, they went to Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law and teachings about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where the Levites and the priests gave the offerings and celebrated the feasts. After leaving Mount Sinai, the Jews moved into the desert where they were counting the faces for a census. That's the book of Numbers. They traveled to Kadesh, which was an oasis. From there, they sent out 12 spies. Because of the reports of 10 of the 12 spies, the nation wanders in the desert and a whole generation dies. They finally ended up in Moab, where Moses gives the second law in the book of Deuteronomy, a series of sermons on the original laws, and then he dies. At that point, we've covered the Pentateuch, all of Moses' writings. Now, now we've finished Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let's keep going. God has cleansed the nation of the doubting generation, and now he allows jo Joshua to cross the Jordan. They traveled to and destroyed the, healthy city, the heathen city of Jericho with the famous blowing of the trumpets, crumbling of the walls. Once in the lands, the Jews divide and conquer in two military campaigns, first the south and then the north of the land as that God had promised. Then they came, uh, divided the land, but this time to settle it. They divide the land between the 12 tribes of Israel. Our next move takes us into the period of the judges, which lasts another 400 years. Three examples of the judges are Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Varying degrees of character, but really none of them stellar. <laughs> During this period of judges, every man did that which was right in their own eyes, except for two exceptions, Ruth and Samuel. Samuel provides the transition because he's the last judge, but he anoints the first king, which takes us into the period of the United Kingdom, which lasted about 120 years. During that time, there were kings, there were three of them, Saul, who had no heart for God, David, who had a whole heart for God, and Solomon, who had a half heart for God. Those three guys each reign about 40 years. Solomon's sons take us into the period of the divided kingdom, which lasted another 400 years. The kingdom was divided into the north and the south, the north being Israel, the south being Judah. In the northern kingdom, there were 19 kings. In the southern kingdom, there were 20 kings. Of the 19 in the north, zero were good, if you judge them by having a heart for God. In the south, of the 20 kings, eight were good. During the period of this divided kingdom, the prophets speak on behalf of God and warn the Jews to shape up or ship out. Because the message falls on deaf ears, Assyria comes and overtakes Israel. Then they scatter them throughout the Middle East. About 150 years later, the Babylonians come down and conquer Judah, and they eventually take them into exile for 70 years. After a period of time, Babylonia is taken over by Persia. Persia has no interest in the Jews, so they allow the Jews to return to the promised land. The first wave of people come with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Then, this, during this time, Esther becomes queen in Persia. The second wave of people come back with Ezra, who was responsible for bringing back most of the people. The third wave came back with Nehemiah, who was responsible for organizing and rebuilding the walls. Then in the scriptures, there's a period of 400 years of silence, and then we move to the New Testament with the arrival of Christ. That's the Old Testament. There you have it. Okay, That's the summary of what we all talked about. Now, structurally, let me put that together a little bit. You've seen this many, many, many times. There are 11 books that if you read them, you get that storyline. If you read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, um, 2 Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah, that's the storyline. All of the other things are supplemental. Um, let me highlight just a couple of things. Um, creation, we don't know exact date. If the chronologies are closed, that means there's no gaps in the chronologies in the Bible, which I don't think is true. I think there are some gaps. Um, there are times when um, you're missing a few generations uh, because the word son of can mean heir of. And so um, Adam probably lives some, somewhere 
between 4,000 and 6,000 BC. If, if, the, if, the, if the genealogies are closed, it's about 4,000 BC. If there's some gaps in the genealogy, it it's, could be up to 6,000 BC. Um, we know another pretty solid date. The, the exodus from Israel is in 1440, or from Egypt, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Um, that takes place in 1446 BC. The divided kingdom, or, or the united kingdom, with Saul, David, and Solomon, united kingdom, um, that's from 1050 BC to 930 BC. Um, we know a pretty solid date. Uh, the Assyrians come down and wipe out the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And in 586, um, the, the Babylonians have supplanted the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians are going to come down, and they're going to take Judah into exile for 70 years. Um, I'm going to point out a couple of things. Um, First and Second Chronicles retell the stories that are in the Kings, Samuel and Kings. Um, Samuel and Kings tell the story of Israel really from a political point of view from the palace. Chronicles retells that same period, but from a spiritual point of view from the temple. Um, So they're retelling all of these stories. Uh, I'm going to highlight here uh, that during mostly the period um, of the United Kingdom with Saul and David, we get the wisdom literature, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, and, and Job fits, in terms of the type of literature, Job fits with that, although Job probably lived really maybe as a contemporary of Abraham. Now we're going to move to the prophets. Uh, during, during that time of the divided kingdom between the north and the south, there are prophets who prophesied during um, the pre-exilic, before the Assyrian uh, destruction of the northern kingdom and the uh, Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom. Um, there are some prophets who prophesied just to Israel. There are some who prophesied just to Judah. Um, then there are three prophets whose topic um, is actually other nations, Edom and, and um, Assyria, and even a, one particular city, Nineveh. But that message is not for those nations. That message is for, still for the nation of Israel, showing that God is compassionate to those nations, jo- Ju- uh, Jonah, and that God will judge nations, um, Obadiah and Nahum. Uh, so the, the message is still for Israel. Then while they're in captivity, two prophets are going to preach, Ezekiel and Daniel. Daniel's going to be in the palace as an advisor to the kings. Ezekiel is going to live in the ghetto. He's going to be more with the people. Then after 70 years, they come back, and there are three prophets who prophesy at the end of the Old Testament. They're called the post-exilic prophets because they come back after that period of time. That's Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, Another way you can frame this is by thinking who's politically dominant. Um, During the Assyrian period, there are a number of prophets who are prophesying. And just to give you some perspective, um, Assyria, Babylonia, and Persia, are all north of Israel. Egypt is south of Israel. Egypt and Assyria, Egypt and Babylonia, Egypt and Persia are always in conflict to be the dominant world power, and Israel is the battleground. Um, there is a little bit more of a direct route, but it's over, it, it would take them through what we now see, know as Saudi Arabia. It's a big desert. They can't fight there. So they come over to the coast, which is where Israel is, and that's where all of the battles are taking place. But for a long period of time, the Assyrians are, Assyrians are in dominance, and there are some prophets who are prophesying during that period. Then the Babylonians supplant them as the major northern world power, 
And there are some prophets who prophesied during that time, including Daniel and Ezekiel. And then during the, the Persian period, there's a couple of prophets uh, who are going to prophesy the post-exilic prophets. And then there's some that we don't know exactly where they fit and maybe have spanned a, a, a huger period of time. That's the Old Testament. We spent weeks and weeks and weeks going through that. That's the storyline. <laughs> While we were helpless, none of these things were going to work. God spent 39 books showing us paradise is not your hope. Um, promises, that's not your hope. Laws, nope, you won't follow them. Leaders, they're going to lead you the wrong way. Lessons from the prophets, all those messages, you won't listen. You need something different. So while, while he finally demonstrated our helpless, hopeless case, he then sent Christ to come. But before Christ came, at the end of the Old Testament, as we move into the New Testament, there's this period of time. We call it the silent years. I'm going to make a point about that in just a moment, okay? Here's the time uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about 400 years um, from the end of the Old Testament, the writing of Malachi, until you get to the events that are beginning the New Testament uh, in probably 5 BC is, I think, when it probably starts. Uh, let me just move politically across the top. There's a period of time we've talked about where the Assyrians are the dominant world power. They are supplanted by the Babylonians. And then the Persians are going to come in and they're going to move them out. And then there's a very significant thing that happens when the Greeks become the world power. Alexander the Great, in a period of about 10 years from 333 BC until 323 BC, he co conquers the entire world. The significant thing that happens there is what we call Hellenization. The world is Hellenized. The way you can think about that is the, the world is Greekized. Um, as, as Alexander dominates the world, he brings the Greek culture to the world, Hellenization of the world. What that especially means is everyone in the world begins to speak Greek. So there's a unified language around the world, everybody speaking the same language, Greek. And there's a unified philosophy and particularly an educational system that is unified around the whole world. So during this time between the Testaments, all of a sudden everybody can speak the same language. There's still regional dialects, but all of a sudden there's one language for the whole world and there's one kind of way everybody's thinking. Okay? Then the Romans are going to push out the, the Greeks. They're going to take over and the Romans are in charge during the New Testament times. But the Romans do an interesting thing. They bring what they're most famous for, not Hellenization, that's the Greeks. The Romans are most famous for the Pax Romana. It's a Latin term that means the peace of Rome. And it's a, it's a huge stabilizing factor for, for the world. The, the, the peace of Rome comes in their stability. But how that stability is provided is through a mobile army. Um, the Roman legions were, were mobile, and they could go anywhere to put down any uprisings. So the, the stability was no uprisings were allowed to be in place. But in order to get, that, um, to get that army mobile, there had to be a road system built. And so the Romans built a road system through the entire world. So in between the Testaments, 400 years, a couple of things happen. All of a sudden, everybody's speaking the same language. The educational system looks the same. There's stability, and there's a road system. Exactly what you need if you're going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Once Jesus comes and he tells us to take the message, we're taking the message 
to a world that's unified with the same language, has a similar educational system, and a road system. <laughs> I mean, it's almost as if God was preparing the way. The lesson I want to make in this intertestamental period is to tell you this. When God is silent, he is still sovereign. During that 400 years, he's silent. He's not revealing anything. He was still sovereignly preparing the way and setting everything up. And now let me be personal. In your life, when God seems silent, he's still sovereign. You may not feel like he's talking to you, but you may not understand what he's up to. But in, in, in the back of your life, he's setting things up. So that you may not see it for, for years down the road, but when you look back at it, you go, oh my word, a similar language, a road system, peace that allows us to travel and take this message anywhere. When God is silent, he is still sovereign. Now, there's some things that are happening with the Jewish community during this time as well. When you end the New Testament, there are no synagogues. In the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle, which is a tent. The tabernacle is replaced by the permanent structure, um, the temple. But there are no synagogues. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, there are no synagogues. And when you get to the New Testament, there are synagogues everywhere. And we literally don't exactly know where they came from. Here's our best guess. Our best guess is that the synagogues were developed probably while Ezekiel was, Daniel's in the palace in Babylon. Um, Ezekiel is living out among the people in this um, refugee camp. Um, and, and Ezekiel is out there, and he, it looks like, has put together a, a system where the people could gather together and learn the Hebrew scriptures and really orient themselves to, to God's ways because they didn't have access to the temple. They weren't being brought together. They didn't have access to the temple, so they started these synagogues. And we do know that there's a lot of great learning that takes place in Babylon because we have this thing called the Babylonian Talmud um, that, that was developed even when the Jews came back, when Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, when they brought everybody back. A huge community stayed in Babylon and continued to study the Word of God there, and the Babylonian Talmud is probably the best Old Testament commentary from the ancient world we have. Um, so there's a lot of things going on in Babylon, and it looks like maybe this concept of having a synagogue, a place of learning for families to learn the Bible and orient themselves around Jewish traditions is going to take place during this period between the Testaments. There's another thing that happens, and it's the development of the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans show up in the New Testament. They're not in the Old Testament. They show up in the New Testament, and here's who they are. When, uh, when the when the Israelites are taken into captivity, the people who stayed behind in the land, those who intermarried with other cultures um, and didn't keep things distinctly pure as in their Jewish heritage, they become the Samaritans. So when the Israelites come back, the people who remained pure and the pure people who were away, when they came back, they disdained the Samaritans. And that's, that's really why the Samaritans are not liked in the New Testament, because they didn't maintain their religious distinctiveness. There's another thing that happens in this period between the Testaments, and it's the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Um, basically, what's going on is all of these people are realizing um, yes, the Bible was written in Hebrew. We're trying to teach them Hebrew in these synagogues, but all of our kids speak Greek. All of our kids speak Greek. So over a period of about 200 years, they, they slowly, with varying degrees of, 
of uh, skill, uh, translate the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, and it's in place. And, and you can actually tell in the New Testament, you can tell whether they're quoting from the Old Testament in Hebrew or the Old Testament Septuagint. It seems pretty clear uh, what they're, what they're uh, teaching from. Uh, there's one other group of peoples that I need to talk to you about um, that aren't present in the Old Testament, but are present by the time you get to the New Testament. Um, the first one is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, here's the quick summary of who these people are. The Sadducees are aristocratic, wealthy people who are influential and liberal. They're Jewish, but liberal in their terms of their commitment to the Jewish faith and willing to compromise to maintain power and affluence. So they are aristocratic liberals who are, are, will compromise to maintain their positions of, of influence and their power and their wealth. The Pharisees are the opposite of that. They are conservative, legalistic. They're not going to compromise on anything, and they don't care um, if they have um, Roman approval. In fact, they're in conflict with the Romans all of the time. Uh, there's another group of people made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, mostly Sadducees, called the Sanhedrin. Uh, there were a number of smaller courts and, and little tribunals in every city that would sit and decide things. But the Sanhedrin, particularly what developed into the great Sanhedrin of 71 people that was in Jerusalem, the great Sanhedrin is kind of like the Supreme Court. The Romans are in charge politically, but they allowed the Jews to solve some of their own decisions. And there were smaller Sanhedrins, but the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem is like the Supreme Court to, sell, to settle their major, major deals. Two other groups, the Essenes. Describing the Essenes, um, they're hippies who live in the desert because they're frustrated with the man, okay? They are frustrated with the conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Those guys are in conflict. They're killing each other. They're persecuting each other. And they're going, that ain't what we're supposed to be about. We're leaving that behind because this can't be of God. They were obsessed with Daniel and the book of Psalms. And in those books, they read that the one who's coming this Messiah who's coming, is going to be announced in the wilderness. And so they went out to the wilderness to wait for him. So they are hippies who live in communes out in the wilderness, um, studying the Bible, frustrated with all the stuff that's going on in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but in, it's pretty likely that John the Baptist hung out with these guys for a while. That's why he's kind of a wild man. Yeah, he fits in their character just perfectly. Um, then there are the zealots. They are religious terrorists. Um, they are committed to the state of Israel, and they are willing to um, commit violence and murder. Um, the only good Roman is a dead Roman, and if you can get that through an uprising or you can find a guy in an alley, that's what we're going to do. So these, these are the, the Jewish groups that are trying to figure out how to live in this world. And none of this is working. It's only preventing, presenting conflict. And sometimes one group is in charge. Sometimes another group is in charge. Um, they have varying degrees of influence. That's what happens between the Testaments. Um, the, the world is unified with the language. There's a time of peace. There's a road system that's built. Um, everybody's kind of thinking the same way. And a lot of conflict within Judaism. A lot of conflict within Judaism. And that leads us to the New Testament story. And here's the New Testament story. <laughs> After all of the demonstration that we are helpless and hopeless, God says, here's your solution. It's Jesus Christ. 
And he came and provided good news, and that is he's the Savior of the world. Then he left and told us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to take that message around the world. And he said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to set everything right eventually. That's the New Testament story. Set it up a little bit with some uh, verses, okay? Here's, um, I'm going to give you a summary that's going to take me about five minutes to read. Um, again, written by my wife. Um, but here's, here's a real quick summary of it written by Paul. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That's the New Testament. He was revealed in the flesh. He was born, born of the Virgin Mary, vindicated in the spirit. He did miracles, seen by angels, um, transfiguration, and during his temptation. Proclaimed among the nations. That's what the rest of the New Testament is. He was believed on in the world and taken up into glory. That's the life of Christ. Now, I'm going to make that a little bit longer. I'm going to set up some dates, first of all. I'm pretty convinced of the first date on there that Christ's birth was the winter of 5-4 BC. I'm, um, I'm certain of that. Uh, Christ was either born in December of 5 BC or January of 4 BC. Um, that has to be true because it was clearly wintertime and um, Herod, who we call Herod the Great, he's really Herod the baby killer, Herod dies in March of 4 BC. So, so it's got to be before March of 4 BC, um, which puts Jesus at the temple in 8, that should be AD. Um, his ministry starts in 30 AD. The triumphal entry that we celebrate as Palm Sunday is actually on Monday. It's Monday, March 3rd of 33 AD. That's predicted, by the way, with specificity in Daniel chapter 9. Um, the crucifixion would have been on Friday, April 3rd of 33 AD. The resurrection, Sunday, April 5th of 33 AD. The ascension, 40 days later, May 14th. And the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, May 24th of 33 AD. Um, put a little bit of this together. There's, uh, in the New Testament, the land is divided into three areas. Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee in the north. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and Samaria in between. All the Samaritans are kind of pushed to that area in between, um, which is farthest away from all of the, the water sources. They're, they're not in a good, good position there. Um, I'm going to highlight one other area, and it's this area over here. Um, on the other side of the Jordan, a lot of Jewish population there, but mainly Gentile population in Perea and the Decapolis. Um, Decapolis is it's Greek for 10 cities. It's these 10 cities, and... But, the reason I'm going to highlight that is I'm going to pause for just a moment and say some things interest. It's you need to know some of these things to make sense of what happens in the New Testament. Things like this: um, <clears throat> Jesus feeds five thousand people, and he feeds four thousand people. Different feedings, different times, different places. When he feeds the five thousand, he's in Israel. And when he finishes feeding the five thousand, what they do is they take up all the leftovers. And there are 12 baskets full left over. It's as if Jesus is saying, I've got enough for all of you, and I've got leftovers for the entire 12 nations of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, I got more than enough for all of you. When he feeds the 4,000, he's not in Israel, he's over in Perea. He's on the other side that is Gentile land. He feeds 4,000 people there, and when they collect the leftovers, there are seven baskets full, not 12, there are seven. Why 12 and why seven? Well, when the Israelites 
go in under Joshua to conquer the land. You remember who's there. There's the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, all the Canaanites and the Mosquitoites, all those guys, the ites. Do you know how many there are? Anyone want to guess? Seven. It's as if God is saying, yes, Jesus has enough for all of Israel and he has enough for all of the Gentile nations as well. Jesus has got everything you need. Um, here's a picture of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Um, this is, archaeology lets us know this is probably very accurate of what, what this would have looked like. Um, up here on the top, you see uh, the Temple Mound. During the Old Testament times, um, that would have just been the crest of a hill. It would have just been a hill. And on top of that hill um, is where the tabernacle would have been. And then Solomon would have built the temple. And the rebuilt temple under Zerubbabel would have been on the crest of a hill um, there. The big thing you see right there is actually accomplished by Herod the baby killer. Um, here's what's going on with Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great um, is ruthless in his power, um, but he has Rome's favor, and they allow him to tax at will, but he just can't raise any military forces. Think about a government that could tax at will, but did, couldn't spend any of it on the military. He met, had some great building projects, huge ones. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a maritime port that he built that was just absolutely amazing, particularly for the time in which it was built. But the other thing he did to appease the Jews, because Herod's not Jewish, he's, he's actually a descendant of Esau, he's Edomian. Um, Herod is going to take that crest of the hill, and he's going to build retaining walls and fill it all in to make a 30-acre platform on the top. And then he builds what we know as Herod's temple, which is the temple that would have been in place in Jesus' time, up on that mount. But if you came to Jerusalem, this is what you would be looking at. I'm going to highlight one other thing. Over on, on the other side, um, there's this Mount of Olives. If you, if you were on the edge of the temple mound, there's a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And then on the other side, there's a small little rise. It's just a little a hill. But that's what we call the Mount of Olives. In between there is the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, so that kind of gives you a little bit of a flow. So now let me get you to the story. <clears throat> Bethlehem is the city of Jesus' birth, which took place in the winter of 54 BC. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape Herod and then returned to Nazareth, where he was raised by his construction worker father, who was a carpenter, a stonemason. The Greek word is a technon. He was a technician. Jesus inaugurated his ministry when he, was, when he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Immediately after this, he went to the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan but overcame all the temptations. Jesus went to Jerusalem often, likely three times a year, for the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Trumpets. On one trip, he taught Nicodemus about the second birth, which is necessary to be saved. From time to time, he had ministry in Samaria and on his way to Jerusalem. On one trip, he stopped at Sychar, where he met a woman at the well and proved to her that he was Messiah, which was a message she shared with many others. Early in his ministry, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth and experienced a clear rejection in the synagogue there. He decided to move his base of operations and ministry to the lakeside city of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. From there, he made a selection of 12 apostles whom he trained to carry out his ministry. He preached the Sermon on the Mount, explaining the righteous, that righteousness cannot be earned but must be imputed. Jesus was accused by the religious leaders that he is getting his power from Satan, which led him to teach in a different way. The parables start in order to teach those who were spiritual, had spiritual insight and confuse those with religious pride. On the Sea of Galilee, a storm is stilled, and that proves to the disciples that he was the Son of God. 
Later, as his following was growing, a crowd filled up with, uh, uh, with a miraculous meal that included 12 baskets of leftovers demonstrated that Jesus makes more than enough provision for the nation of Israel. Near the middle of his ministry, a testimony of Peter made it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. The transfiguration of Jesus in the presence of Peter, James, and John revealed his full glory. The opposition to Jesus continued to grow in Jerusalem until stones flew from the religious leaders trying to kill him. Therefore, Jesus withdrew and began to focus his training on his disciples. In Perea, across the Jordan, he taught his disciples about counting the cost and how he was seeking the lost. Jesus made his final trip to Judea at the time of the Passover, and on the way he stopped in Bethany, where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and that caused many to believe in him. While in Jericho, a tax collector came to faith in Jesus. Zacchaeus, this tax collector, praised by Jesus, demonstrated that all sinners can find salvation in him. Finally, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in a triumphal entry, which quickly followed by a temple cleansing. On the night before his crucifixion, he had a last supper with his disciples. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and is betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. Jesus is tried three times and found innocent each time. He is denied by Peter, crucified by the Romans, and finally resurrected to prove he is the Son of God and Savior of the world. His life really breaks down into three things, preparation, ministry, and passion. I'm going to come back and we'll review that in some of the subsequent messages. The word ascends helps us remember that in Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven, gives the spirit, which enables the apostles to cure people as a sign to authenticate their message. Ananias and Sapphira, embezzle, uh, embezzlement of sorts, uh, resulted in their death. After being arrested, Peter and John experienced a night release, and the gospel ex- uh, exploded so much that they had to appoint deacons to take care of some duties to keep the apostles focused on the word of God in prayer. Stephen was the first Christian to be martyred for his faith in Christ. The person of the persecution of the church by the Jews became official, but this didn't prevent Philip's preaching from spreading the gospel to Samaria. After harshly persecuting the church, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus resulted in a dramatic change in the future of the gospel witness. Peter's vision cleared the way for the Gentiles to be fully accepted into the church. Paul's first missionary journey lasted two years as he took the gospel to the region of Galatia. After the journey, he returned to Jerusalem, where the leaders of the church held a council and said, Law? No, that's not the way. Paul's second missionary journey lasted three years as he planted churches in Macedonia, Achaia, and Greece. His third missionary journey lasted four years, and he planted churches in Asia. Like Jesus, Paul went through three trials before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. His first imprisonment was in Caesarea and then Rome. After his freedom from Rome, he evangelized in more places, perhaps even in Spain, until the second imprisonment, which did not stop the church, but led to further expansion. Um, The summary of Paul's life, and I've got to really pick up some time here. The summary of Paul's life is basically this. On his first missionary journey, after his first missionary journey, he writes one book, Galatians. After his second missionary journey, he writes two books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. On his third missionary journey, he writes three books, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. In prison, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And at the end of his life, he writes 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy written probably weeks before his death. Um, How all of that fits together looks like this. The Gospels are these four agendas that that God has uh, for each one of these writers to present the life of Christ. And each one of them, and we're going to show you very specifically, each one of them have a specific audience that they're writing to, perspective that they have, and agenda that they're trying to accomplish. I'm going to highlight that Luke and Acts go together as a two-part story of saying, here's the life of Christ, and here's what his followers did to take that message around the world, especially Paul, which leads us to the Pauline epistles that are written to Paul's churches and his protégés. 
Um, then the general epistles are written a little bit more, less specifically to people and churches and kind of have more of a general feel. I'm going to highlight one other thing here, and that is that John, who writes a lot of the New Testament, um, he basically does this. John says, Jesus came, he's our Savior. He's coming back, he's going to be our judge. That's Gospel of John and Revelation. First, second, and third John is, how do you live in between? He came, he's coming back, how do you live in between? And his answer is this, um, you walk in the light and you walk in love and you live on mission. That's, 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 that's the message of John. Um, if I put it together historically, um, it, it looks like this crucifixion um, in, in April of 33 AD. Um, the book of Acts develops the whole storyline. Paul's conversion, probably two years after Christ's crucifixion, um, the Jerusalem Council in 49. And when the Jerusalem Council says, yes, the gospel can go to the Gentiles without the law, that leads to the flourishing of Paul's ministry and him going on all these missionary journeys. Um, he goes on more missionary journeys at the end of his life, uh, resulting in the writing of all these epistles that, that Paul writes. It's just, it's a huge thing. Uh, and Paul's death probably in 68 AD. That's kind of how this, this thing flows. So, so Paul, Paul's conversion 35 is death in 68. That's what we're probably um, looking at here. Um, and a huge factor in the, Old Test in the New Testament is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Um, you, it helps us with understanding and dating some of this kind of stuff, because if you're talking about the temple, it hasn't been destroyed yet. So that stuff happens before 70 AD. John's writings don't really mention much temple stuff, and, and that's probably evidence that he's writing after the destruction of the temple. Um, I've got a chart out there at the Connection Center. By the way, all the stuff you're seeing up here, there's, they're online. They're at the Connection Center. Um, <clears throat> you can get them. That, that summary of, of me reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's on a front and back. Old Testament on one side, New Testament on the other side. Thank you, Don Wilson. Um, this is how the books all fit together. I'm going to say one thing about the Gospels before we get there. Um, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell Jesus' life from the same perspective. John tells it from a very different perspective. There's a lot I could say about that. Here's the summary. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell Jesus' life from the perspective of they start with him as a human on earth. They kind of start with, here's, here's who he was, here's his family, here's how he was born, he started this ministry, and eventually you realize, oh, he's God, he's the Savior of the world. John does exactly the opposite. John starts with, he's God, and then shows you how he connects and how you need to respond to him. Um, the Synoptic Gospels have an interesting relationship um, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of similar material. Matthew and Luke share even more material. Very little of Mark is unique to him. And the summary of it is going to be this. Um, we're not sure which way it goes. Either Mark wrote first, and Matthew and, Mark, Matthew and Luke expand him, or Matthew wrote first, and by the time Mark is done, he's looking at Matthew and Luke and kind of condensing it and giving it a summary. What we do know is this. Whether they knew about each other or not, they're telling the same story. And the, the, the unified perspective they have demonstrates that this is one real story. So here's how I would summarize all of that. Paul says it this way. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The fullness of times. What that means is after the Old Testament demonstrated we needed him so badly, 
God sent his son to redeem us. So what are some lessons we can learn from all of this? Here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Remember, as you see this whole thing flow it out, God is sovereign. He's got a plan. Our participation in that plan depends on our alignment with his purposes. He's going to accomplish his plan. Everything he said is going to come true. Our involvement in it and in terms of participation and joy and reward all depends on how well we align ourselves with his purposes. We are hopeless and helpless apart from the grace of God. And I would summarize it in this way. God's grace, Christ's provision, and the Holy Spirit's presence is our only hope. The whole Old Testament is saying, you can't do this on your own. So what I'm going to ask you to do here, some next steps. Actually read your Bible regularly this year. I'm trying to help you do that. It is the most predictive of spiritual growth, your personal time in the Bible. And I don't care if you're reading Bible Genesis to Revelation through. That's a good thing to do from time to time. But I think it's also equally great to just pick one book and, and spend a lot of time in Ezekiel or a lot of time in Ephesians and, and read it for three months in a row. Um, and read your Bible responsibly, understanding it in context. That's what I'm trying to provide. And making application of it. How do you align your life with God's purposes and live for him?